0: Yeah, really been excited for this trip to Idaho. Really hoping that like all of our time and planning and everything is worth it and we have fun and we end up with some great interviews. There's some really cool kick-ass people over here that the world really needs to know about. Idaho is not on the map and the radar right now when it comes to wine very much. And especially people in the Pacific Northwest really have no idea what they're doing over there. Boise being as high as it is, they're not really known for one thing in particular, what I've understood and learned from talking to all of them. They're still kind of experimenting and um, they're able to do a lot of the hotter varietals. So you'll see a lot of Cabernet, you'll see Merlot. You will see a lot of Riesling. So there was a lot of Riesling planted in the Caldwell. I think it's, oh gosh, they're gonna kill me. I think it's Treasure Valley. Is what it's considered over there. And you'll see a ton of Riesling, which I had absolutely zero clue when I came over here originally. I was a little bit shocked when I saw all of that or heard that that's what a lot of it was planted. So several people are, you know, pulling the Riesling out and they're replanting it with other things. Um, But they really haven't found like the one thing that they are known for yet. And they're still working on that. And experimenting with a lot of different practices and winemaking styles and so and, this is all new like this is all new this is like pioneering when I started looking into Idaho like two or three years ago there was only 60 wineries in the entire state yeah that's only that's all they had in the entire state was approximately 60 what's considered a lot what's well in Oregon there's over a thousand Okay. Yeah. And Washington, there's right around a thousand. So Idaho is still really young. If I read and remembered the information correctly, there's over 35,000 plantable acres of ground available for for grapes in the state. So I think Idaho is going to be a big up and coming. Wine industry, and we—they just haven't gotten there yet. So they had a lot of grapevines planted, and then the Prohibition hit, and a lot of them had to get yanked out. So they've had to restart from scratch with a, in a lot of different respects.
1: That's pretty cool.
0: It's just you get to be there at the beginning, just watching figuring things out as they go. It's pretty exciting, and even seeing the um, the expansion just in three years. I mean, there's been several new wineries pop up, some of the wineries that are over there and and have been established are starting to get a following outside of just the local area. So I think people are starting to kind of explore and discover, but it's still really, really young in the grand scheme of things and very small. I just think there's so many more stories outside of the Willamette Valley that need to be told and captured and taken the show on the road. How fun.
1: From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season five of the wine crush podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to Wine Crush. This is our road trip edition. We are in Idaho. We are in Caldwell, Idaho in fact. And first up, first out of the gate, first thing this morning is Mary Alger with Houston. And we are missing Greg this morning.
1: Yes, Greg had some farming duties this morning. Um, This is the time of year where we're really kind of calibrating what the tonnage is going to look like and what the crop is going to look like and where we're at with Beresian. And he had to be elsewhere. So he's sorry he's missing today. And I'm sorry he's missing today, too. You're going to carry the team just fine. So this (laughs) will... This will be super fun for
0: us. This is our first episode in Idaho. We've not been in Idaho. We, I don't think we've even interviewed anybody in Idaho. So this is going to be a learning experience for so many, um, including myself, because I learn something new every time. But I want to talk about Houston, which is your vineyard. So your two wines are Houston Vineyard, and then we have Chicken Dinner Wine, which I love the branding on that. I, I think it was actually one of the initial wine brands I drew to when I started kind of exploring over here because I love the chicken in the weather vane and everything else. Um, but before we get into the wine, and I will say we're not drinking wine yet this morning because it's, it's actually kind of early for wine.
1: It, it's a little early. But yes. That's okay. I mean, for
0: the professional day drinkers of the world, <laughs> yeah, we're really missing the boat. But we'll hold off just a little bit longer before we kind of crack the bottles open. But let's talk about your story. Your story and most that are in the, well, really in the wine industry in general, especially in the Pacific Northwest, didn't usually start in the wine industry. They
1: started somewhere else. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that before I tell my story, I think that's so unique about Idaho is that many of the growers here are truly mom and pop family business wineries. We're not large corporate wineries. We're um, a very unique breed. And I think that's one of the things that makes the Snake River Valley a, a beautiful place. But both my husband and I grew up on farms. My husband came from a family that actually homesteaded in Meridian. And I grew up on 160 acres in Hawaii County. And I knew when I went to college at the University of Idaho that I could do anything but come back to the farm or marry a farmer. So fast forward um, 10 years and turned 30 years old, I met a businessman. I thought, perfect, he matches the portfolio of non-farmer, so this is going to maybe work out. So we got married, we had two boys, and we looked at each other and said, we need to get back to the farm because agriculture was in our roots. It's where we wanted to raise our boys. So we came out to Chicken Dinner Road and bought 273 acres and started a vineyard. Was there any other thoughts of a different crop or was it always grapes? You know, grapes and we also row crop farm. So our area of Idaho is incredible for seed production. So we grew yellow wax bean seed, turnip seed, blue flax flower seed. And so took both crops, row crop farms and vineyards, and worked on both of those until row crop farming just got so big and we needed to really focus on vineyards and winemaking that we kind of scaled back on the row crop farms and pushed forward on the vineyards and the winemaking.
0: Were the two of you wine drinkers before going back out to the farm or was it, it seems so many times that people are like, oh, let's grow vineyards because it looks pretty and it's kind of romantic and it's going to be easy. And But they weren't really wine drinkers or maybe they kind of dabbled in it a little bit, but they're like,
1: ah, let's do grapes. And then It's a whole new world when you decide to do grapes. Right. Well, I have always been a wine drinker. In fact, I was raised Catholic, and it was just part of the family dinner table on Saturday nights that the children got a little splash, and Mom and Dad had a glass, and it was just about wine and food together. That's how I was raised. Greg, on the other hand, was not really a wine drinker prior to us getting into the business, but as we started to explore vineyards... Just that passion for the agriculture and the fact that, you know, you have one ingredient in wine, and that is grapes. And that was very intriguing to us both because you weren't making a recipe. You were creating something from the earth in a given weather year. And so I think that made, you know, his passion maybe even deeper because it was something that he'd never seen before. And it's just a beautiful part of wine. Wine is so
0: complicated and it's so beautiful and it's so simple at the same time. And when you hit that creative side and you find that passion in it and the fact that you do have, like, a truly a time capsule in the bottle, you know, whatever Mother Nature throws at you, whatever the terroir is going to, you know, do for you that year, it really is an intriguing substance, you know, whether you consider it
1: alcohol or booze or art or, you know, however you kind of categorize it. Right. I agree. And, you know, for Houston Vineyards, we have always said— you know, wine belongs at the dinner table. If uh, if you would really like to have the other effects of alcohol, you sh- you can do it much cheaper elsewhere. But it really is about sharing all that the market basket of a community can bring together. So many agrees on that one. So <laughs> it's
0: just, it's something that I have learned and really enjoyed about wine because it's amazing when you crack a bottle of wine open, it almost draws like, you know, flies to stink, so to speak, in a very beautiful way. It like, you know, even my kids at this point in time, you know, if I open a bottle of wine and they just happen to be around, we get extra glasses on the bar. My husband wants a glass. And so and then it kind of creates these conversations in the kitchen or around the food or whatever it mm-hmm. is that we're having that has really been fun mm-hmm. to explore. Um, let's talk about a little bit more about sunny slope, mm-hmm. where you're at, and kind of, you know, um, how that compares to the Willamette Valley, because just the elevation itself is Horrifically different, and then also kind of what we're looking at varietals and um, how that's affected by the the heat units and everything that you have going
1: over on this side of the world. Yeah, I just think that's probably one of the neatest things about when we get people in the tasting room. They're like, "You grow grapes at what elevation?" and you do this with just seven to ten inches of rain a year. I think um, you know our volcanic soils and you know that sandy loam soil that we have on top of it just creates a beautiful platform for wine. We do grow at higher elevations. Our growing degree days are much shorter. Compare us to Washington. They grow on glacier soils. We grow on volcanic soils. Our growing grows up to about 3,300 is the height of our AVA. Sunny Slope is where about 85% of all of the grapes are grown in Idaho. There's multiple vineyard sites out there and multiple terroirs. Like our soil is very dark, earthy, volcanic, and you go 15 miles to the south and it's all red volcanic soil. You go a little bit to the west and you're going to get a lot of that sandy loam soil. And so it's just fascinating what happens inside of the sunny slope. We also have that intense summer heat too, and that's helpful to us for growing degree days. Making varietals like Syrah Malbec, Merlot, just absolutely beautiful grapes.
0: It's hot. I think it was 105 yesterday when we hopped out of the pickup and I'm like, "Oh my god, this is just, you know, it's but it's a dry heat, so it's a little right. bit different than being, you know, even back over in the Willamette Valley where we do get that hot, but then you kind of get that little bit of mugginess that just is ultra miserable. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, beautiful. Yeah, and it's and it's um it's so interesting because I mean, this the hot spot or the sweet spot that I'm used to is between like 700 and a 1,000 feet, so to speak, for elevation. And so when I first saw 3,500 and 3,300, I'm like, this has got to be a typo. There's just no way. But I looked it up. I Googled it, Dr. Google, to the rescue and Wikipedia and everything else, and it's high over here. yes. And is that part of kind of the Hell's Canyon, you know, kind of mountainous area? Because Hell's Canyon is not that
1: far from here. It's not that far from here. You know, I think the— The advantage to where we are is that our growing degree days within that summertime are very hot during the day, but yet it cools off at night. And so it's bringing forth in the grapes both that fruit as well as the acidity. So it's just a beautiful play one on the other, and it creates just some wonderful, intense fruit-forward wines. Let's uh, let's talk about Riesling a little bit Mm because—
0: Treasure Valley, right? It's Treasure Valley. Is that what you... Yep, yep. Okay. Just making sure I got the right valley. You got There's the right valley, There's valleys all girl. over. So yep. when I came over here originally, I really wasn't sure what to expect. You know, what is the area known for? What kind of grape varietals are they growing? And I found out that it was a lot of Riesling. Mm-hmm. And I was like shocked because I always thought that was like more of a cool weather grape and, you know, needed the like... And I don't know. This is me being, you know uneducated. Um, But there's a lot of Riesling over here. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's really where Idaho, at least what we call Sunny Slope now, got its start. And, you know, you've probably mentioned before that Idaho started growing grapes in the 1870s up in the Lewis and Clarkston area. But it was really the 1970s where the grape growers, or actually the fruit growers in um, Sunny Slope, were faced with kind of an economic concern And that was that there was a lot of red delicious apples coming into the valley. And so it was marking the price down for what the growers could get their apples for. And they realized that they couldn't even harvest their crops and make a dime. And they said, we've got to diversify our crops. We've got to rethink this. And I think that's really essential to what farming is. It's like when you're faced with an objection or a struggle or a challenge, you've got to rethink it. And so they said, what else can we do? And they started growing wine grapes. And one of the first grapes they planted was Riesling. Riesling did well because, you know, we don't have a lot of growing degree days, but the days that we do have real intensity. And so you get that beautiful, bright fruit note with the Riesling, but yet that dry acidity, which is absolutely perfect in wine. I love Riesling. It's probably one of my favorite grapes
0: and favorite wines. It's made because I think probably because of the aromatics um, mm. with the fruit and stuff are yes, just so beautiful yes. and they're so great on the nose and the palate. And then just that, you know, I don't like an overly sweet wine and that's just me personally. And Riesling can go very sweet yep. and it could go very dry. And so right. it's very versatile and great with food. Mm, absolutely. What is your favorite pairing with Riesling? That's a good question.
1: You know, I'm a spicy girl. So I really like spicy fish tacos or sushi uh, with Riesling. I think those are two wonderful pairings. And our Riesling that we have produced in the past has always been on the dry side. And so it's always been interesting in the tasting room to talk to consumers and they're like, oh no, I don't want to try your Riesling because it's going to be too sweet. Well, that's a beautiful thing about that grape is that it doesn't have to be sweet. Yeah, it can be really
0: all over the place and it's I think that's what makes it fun. It's almost bothersome a little bit when people come in to your tasting room and I hear it a lot even just in my friends, you know, oh, I don't like Chardonnay or I don't like this or I don't like that. I'm like I'm like, you know, I you know, there's there's so many. So there's got to be one that you like and if you really don't like it, you don't like it, but at least try it. You might be surprised.
1: Absolutely, Heidi. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel about even our Chardonnay. People will come into my tasting room over and over and say, oh, I don't drink Chardonnay. I don't drink Oak Chardonnay. I don't drink. And it's like, really? Open your mind. If I tasted this wine with you blind, would you hate it then? No. I think you'd love it. I mean, whether it's my Chardonnay or somebody else's or somebody else's Riesling, just having that open mind about what grows well in a terroir can really expand your palate and your experience with wine. Yeah. And I think there's, especially with Chardonnay, because we hear it all the time in the Valley,
0: you know, the Willamette Valley, I got to not do that because it's confusing to everybody. And then I get in trouble for it is that, you know, Napa has, you know, really shaped the palates on what people think of Chardonnay. So heavy oak, heavy butter, you know, whatever. And I hear it all the time. Nope. ABC, anything Mm -hmm. but Chardonnay, you know, whatever. But you know, there is a big differentiation between Napa and Idaho and Oregon and Washington and all those things. And so, yeah, I was the same way. Like, I'm like, "Mm, no, I'm not, you know, big Chardonnay drinker. It's not what I, you know, really prefer, but I've, you know, learned there's so many different, it's all creative. So it's the terroir,
1: but then also
0: whoever's making it just because, you know oak is the thing doesn't mean that
1: it's you taste like you're licking the inside of the barrel when you drink it so well and i think that there's um you know something to be said for a handcrafted like our chardonnay is in our reserve lineup it's we just make 250 cases of it you know it's not made in huge tanks the size of a football field somewhere and we're not trying to make our chardonnay taste the same year after year after year we're trying to allow within balance what that Chardonnay does in a given year. What happens to Chardonnay when it's a little cooler, or, or when we have an exceptionally warm summer, or we have a hard freeze, or we have a long growing season, it just changes. And I think that's with every varietal, but that's one of the beautiful things about smaller wineries that are trying to create the craft within the growing season. And really showcase the year. Yes, absolutely. Yeah,
0: and that's what's fun, is that you're not going to taste the same thing from year to year to year in in your bottles. This just isn't going to happen if if you do it that way. Right. The small, crafty way. Yes. I want to circle back to the family, because when I was here in May, your son had just graduated
1: college. Yes. And he
0: made a big announcement that he was, I think, going to come back and work with you
1: guys. Yes, yeah. You know, when Greg left corporate America... One of the biggest reasons he left corporate America was he was in in a place where he couldn't really transfer that company to his children. And he says, I want to do something that I can have my boys involved in if they choose. And so our youngest son, Josh, joined um, Houston Vineyard. I mean, they've both worked for us since they were knee-high to a grasshopper, but... He came right out of high school and started managing the vineyards, created a business plan and strategy for managing the vineyards, and he manages over 40 blocks of grapes for us. But then our oldest son, who was a food science fermentation major, we weren't quite sure what he was going to do. He was awful far away from home. He was 300 miles away at the University of Idaho and we didn't know what he was gonna do, but he decided to come back. And so he is coming back as our winemaker and production manager, Jacob. And we're really, really proud to have him both with us. That's so exciting because a lot of times the kids
0: like flee the house and never want to come back. Like you had, you know, not wanted to marry a farmer and didn't want to be on the farm life. It's funny how kind of that the magic of the agriculture and the farm kind of draw you back. I'm the same. I wanted nothing to do with farming after growing up on a farm, but I don't have a dairy farm. Don't ever want a dairy farm, but we have our cows and we have our acreage and it's nice being kind of out in a way. And I did not marry a farmer, but you know, construction workers almost the same thing. So
1: yeah, they know how to work hard, right? They know how to work hard and and you do what you need to do to get the job done. Exactly. Logging background, construction,
0: current, you know, so yeah. Definitely have all the boxes checked on that one. Let's kind of uh, pivot over to wine. You have two different brands. You I have do. the Houston Vineyard brand, mm-hmm. um, and then you have the Chicken Dinner brand, yeah. which again, um, love the love the branding on that. Um, so why Houston Vineyards? Because I just yeah. always assumed it was your last name,
1: and that's that's not right. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. which is great. A lot yeah. of people do assume that I'm Mary Houston, but I'm actually Mary Alger, and you know. Houston, Idaho is a small, unincorporated town just between Marcin and Nampa, so to speak. And uh, it really represented who Greg and I are, because it was a community that was founded by a man by the name of Benjamin Houston, who donated five acres from his land that he had been uh, granted. And he wanted to create a community where the farmers could come together and share what they had locally. And that local farm crop would go to market via the rail line. And so all the farmers could bring their crops to Houston. But it was really just a place for farmers to gather. And they had, you know, two grocery stores and a tractor dealership and a blacksmith shop. And today it's just about a quarter mile from our house and our winery and our production facility. And we really do believe in that local um, sharing what we have locally with our local consumers, but also taking it to that next place, you know, transferring it to the places around Idaho. So it's really about that farming community that we wanted to name our brand after. That's really cool. I didn't know that.
0: Is it on the bottle or on the website somewhere that I should have known that? Um, Maybe on the website. I haven't looked at it in a while, but not on the bottle, no. Okay, okay. So. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, I should have known that story. I really like it. What's the difference between the two brands? Because yeah. a lot of times you have kind of your, like, I hate to call it a higher end brand, right. but it's kind of more your estate brand. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, you know, a different purpose for the other brands. Right, so right. what's the difference? Well, you know,
1: and I don't think there's a lot of, there's not a lot of difference except that our chicken dinner brands is primarily blends. So our chicken dinner white is our Riesling, Muscat Blanc, and Roussan blend. And our chicken dinner red is Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah, and Malbec. So those are blends. Um, then we also have a dry Rosé Movedra. Our Houston brand is primarily single varietals, Chardonnay, Riesling, um, Malbec, Syrah. We also do a couple of blends. Uh, we do a Petite Syrah Cab blend, and we also do our big blend, which is our private reserve blend. That really is the best of the best of a vintage year, and we just make 100 cases of that. So, What's your overall production? About 8,000
0: cases. Okay. So it's not super teeny tiny, but it's not huge. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of that middle of the road. I mean, and again, I don't know what the average over here
1: is. So, But to me, that sounds like a good amount. I I think so. Yeah. Um, I haven't really kept track of where we are in that process, but we know there's definitely some big players out there, and then there's more boutique than even Houston. Yeah. Sure. When I was out in
0: May, um, we came out and visited with you and Greg, a girlfriend and mine, and the chicken dinner, why I like a good aromatic, you know, like we said earlier, and it is such a beautiful aromatic. And so, what goes in that again? Riesling, Muscat, Muscat Blanc, and Roussan, yeah. So, what's the Muscat Blanc and the Roussan?
1: So, you know, we could label that according to the TTB as a Riesling because mm. it has um, from a given year anywhere between 75 and 78% Riesling. But we really feel like just that aromatics of that Muscat Blanc, which we grow quite a bit of it on our estate, that creates just some beautiful tropical notes in this wine. And I also think the Roussan gives it a little bit of creaminess, so it's not as harsh as just a complete aromatic white. So Riesling is primary, about 18% Muscat Blanc and maybe 1% Roussan.
0: So are those kind of common varietals over here because I'd never heard of either of them before. Oh, really? No, yeah. I had not. Not, And that's not saying much because I haven't done any of the set stuff or any of the <laughs> song classes or anything. So, I mean, all these are new and it's fun yeah. to learn about all these new varietals
1: and what they are Yeah, or new to me. Well, you know that we have large blocks of Riesling in Idaho, right? We have large blocks of Chardonnay and Cabernet. And then we have smaller blocks of the other varietals. And I definitely think Muscat Blanc is a beautiful varietal for Idaho because it does just thrives, you know, in terms of in that hot summer day, just the fruit notes and the sugar notes come forward. And then at night that coolness creates that acidity. And I think that's a beautiful thing about our chicken dinner white is just it's so balanced between fruit and acidity. It's not sweet, maybe like you might perceive a Riesling, but yet it's just got nice fruit to it. Yeah. Agreed.
0: Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I do want to kind of hit on the Merlot because okay. poor Merlot took a huge kick in the face yeah, um, years you. ago with Sideways. Sideways. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's amazing what a movie can do to, and Hollywood can do. I mean, I've always said that like Hollywood kind of had ruined wine for me because I just thought you really had to be snooty with it. And yeah. it's Really, not the case, maybe in some areas of the world, but definitely not kind of in the Pacific Northwest, but absolutely. um your merlot is delicious. It's beautiful. like i I took a bottle home, and my husband was a little bit upset that I hadn't brought like a half rack or <laughs> half case um or more home because it was so yeah. good, like it is so smooth, and we drink through. It really quickly. So let's give um, Merlot a little bit of love and talk about it quickly. And
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because I literally, you know, there's a trade journal that we all read called Wine Business Monthly, and I was reading through there, and I could see the Nelson's ratings and what happened to Merlot after Sideways. And it was, it was, you know, gut-wrenching and heart-wrenching because people will automatically allow Hollywood and the news to tell them how they should think. And The terroir that we have here is absolutely beautiful for Merlot. I mean, it just creates some beautiful um, plum, a hint of cedar, a little vanilla. And I think the trick with Merlot in Idaho is just that long, beautiful, silky finish that it has. And our Merlot is, um, we grow it on our estate, but we also source some of the Merlot that goes into that bottle and I think that because of those warm days that we've had and I've talked about in those cool nights, it creates just a really balanced wine. And I think balance is probably the key to that varietal.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's really yummy. Highly recommend mm-hmm. seeking it out. And I had the Syrah last night, which was equally soft and kind of silky. It wasn't, mm-hmm. sometimes you get like these big, bold, jammy, Syrahs that are a little bit chewy,
1: and this was not like that at all. Yeah. I think our 19, you know, it was a cooler growing season for us. I do think it's more of a medium-bodied Syrah, but it just, what's fascinating to me about that grape is that, number one, it grows so well in Idaho, and we actually use, you know, three different ways that we ferment it. We use some traditional fermentation with that Syrah. We also do some foot stomp Syrah, and uh, Ooh, can you invite me to that? Yes. I've always okay. wanted to
0: recreate I Love Lucy with the foot stomping okay. stuff. I'll wash my feet, I promise. Come yes. here
1: in early October and you could spend days doing it with this because it's something that we actually do, you know, almost even, I don't know, quarter to a third of our whole Syrah block. We do foot stomp. And then we also co ferment our Syrah with Beaune and we grow that on our second block as well. So. That's exciting. Guess where I'm coming back in October. Okay, I'll call you. I love it.
0: I'll bring my my camera crew with me and we'll recreate Lucy with the whole thing. All day G- long. Gypsy dress and everything. yes <laughs> um, okay, let's tell people where to find you both in person, social media, all that good stuff and then we'll uh,
1: we'll let you head back out to okay. the farm and help Greg with whatever he's doing. Absolutely. So our uh, social media we're on Facebook and Instagram. Houston Vineyards. A lot of people think it's H-O-U-S-T-O-N, but we're H-U-S-T-O-N, HoustonVineyards.com, and we are on Chicken Dinner Road, and you can find us. You'll see the sign out, the sandwich board sign that tells you, come see us on Chicken Dinner Road. And they have very sweet dogs. I
0: hope yes. you still have the very sweet dogs. We do. We Last time be- I said that, the dog had um, just passed away, and I felt like a real jerk. No, so. things are good. Okay. Things okay. are good with the puppies on Houston. <laughs> okay. Uh, Houston. <laughs> okay, Perfect. <laughs> Mary, thank you so very much to join us and to
1: bring wine, even though we didn't open it. But this has been so great, and I will definitely be back. Well, thank you for your interest in Idaho and the Sunny Slope region and Houston Vineyards. We appreciate you coming out. Absolutely. Thanks.
0: there no almost no oh yeah. we got well. we got three and a half hours left oh, come on i thought i fell asleep when i wake up and... no you didn't sleep that long i hate to tell you <laughs> oh, damn it <laughs> it's like having a whole truck that... full of children when are we gonna be there when are we gonna be there i thought the worst part is over.